so profanity okay? I can totally. You ask if that's okay with me? Yeah. Yeah. Are you cool with like if we? I'm a New Yorker. Are you fucking. <laughs> this is New York Times best-selling author David Mack, and this is Beyond Trek podcast. A red alert. Daughter made a mess of my station here. All these fucking snacks. Too many nachos. <laughs> His kids' nickname. I remember, I remember once when uh, John Ordover and I we had like a, a radio thing we did about Trek. Um, I remember it was like a, some one of like one of the early internet radio things. We got into the studio one day and uh, our guest sat down. And he kind of recoiled from the shelf in front of the mic. He said, "It's all sticky." He says, "I, I think somebody spilled juice all over it." I said, "Ah, oh, sure." Blame the juice. Everybody always <laughs> blames the juice. What did the juice ever do to you? Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. So with us in our little studio-ish virtual studio today, we have David Mack, author of the third of the Star Trek Coda books. And from what we've heard from the other two authors, he's also the one who organized the whole effort, which is quite exciting. Well, I didn't organize the whole thing. Um, Dayton Ward and I actually hit upon the idea about the same time independent of one another oh and he was developing his notion for how we might attack this issue i was developing mine i felt that okay given the realities of the current publishing schedule one person trying to take this on isn't really realistic there's only so many publishing slots in the schedule these days and giving three of them to one author for something like this it would cheese off a lot of people there's you mm-hmm. know you got to try to spread the work around share the love so i thought also in terms of being able to hit a you know one two three successive month release schedule to make it an event uh it would have to be pretty quick turnaround and that spelled multiple authors so i thought all right who would i want to work with on this who would be my my go-to well dayton of course top of my list because dayton and i have collaborated on star trek vanguard on uh, the fall miniseries, the Typhon Pack miniseries, SCE. Dayton and I, we go back like almost 20 years uh, as creative partners. So he was at the top of the list. And then James was right up there because James has also been part of Team Vanguard. Dayton, James and I wrote the 24 novels for Tor Forge back around 2015 to 2017. Uh, And again, good working relationship. So I knew that James was coming to New York City for a conference, the International Thriller Writers, and it was over 4th of July weekend. So I said, hey, do you have any events that Saturday? He said, no, I'm free. So why don't my wife and I swing into Manhattan? We'll pick you up uh, at your hotel. We're going to a barbecue at a friend's place out in Jersey. We'll have some beers, we'll have some brisket, we'll have some burgers, and I'll pitch you this crazy idea of mine. James said, okay. So. Away we go, off to the barbecue, and after socializing for a bit, we, you know, repair to a quiet room, and I make my spiel about how we should bring the Treklet universe to a close now that the continuity and the canon is sort of necessitating uh, a shift in direction. And at first, James wanted nothing to do with it. He goes, I don't want to do that. Why would I want to do that? And then I, I made my case which really kind of boiled down to, well, we really have two choices at this point, or I should say the publisher has two choices. 
they can either abandon the Star Trek literary continuity that we've been working on for 20 years and simply just stop, leave it where it is, let it all, let everything just kind of trail off and let people wonder what happens next. Or we can do an event, bring it to a close our way on our terms and try to make something grand and heroic of it so that it'll feel like to the readers who've been with us on this journey, either in part or for the last 20 years, that it was built into something, that there was a reason for it. And I said, I really think we should go with the latter. And if the publisher goes with that, James, who would be better to do it than us? If we're not going to do it, who is? And would you really want to miss out on being part of an event like that? And now, James says that's that. how you convinced him. Because yep. he was about to back out. Yeah, he, he'd want to know part of it, but I made the pitch. And he said, damn it, Mac, you're right. Damn you. Well, once you make the pitch, you know it's going to happen. And that was the same thing that, that we asked him that I asked is, do you want to sit back and watch it and then regret later that I could have done a better job or I could have done this or that? You're going to have that regret for from now on. So exactly. you might as well just put yourself in it and and do it, which I think was the way you pitched that was the best. Who, someone's going to do it. Do you want to be there or not? Yeah, what's really interesting is that he took a version of our discussion mm -hmm. and he incorporated it into his novel as I believe when one of the characters is trying to persuade another to take part in the mission, uh, which you know on its face sounds crazy. We have to you know destroy, and this is a spoiler for those of you who maybe have not finished reading book two, so Beep. you can go la la la, I'm not listening to you, Jeffrey, for the next 10 <laughs> seconds. Uh, when the plan is put forth that we have to destroy the Bajoran wormhole by pushing DS9 into it and detonating it in order to stop the incursion into our universe by these entities, one of the, the, the parties to whom it's being pitched is saying, are you out of your mind? But that's how the pitch is made. It's a version of my and James's discussion translated into story terms, which I found very funny, especially since many of the sort of meta textual conversations that I had with James, with the editors, with Dayton, uh, and with uh, also Keith DeCandido and Glenn Howman, who were part of that brainstorming session at the barbecue with me and James. Uh, a lot of those meta textual questions uh, got folded into book three. And you'll see certain characters talking about, you know, how do we know we're making the right decision? What makes it, you know, why should we sacrifice what we have for a timeline we don't even know? Do we know that that timeline is going to be better than ours? And the answer, of course, is no, we can't know. Well, then why are we doing it? And so it comes down to philosophical arguments between parties who are essentially in denial about what they have to do. But in the end, if you really dig into it, you realize it's a lot of interrogating the very concept of what we're doing uh, as authors having to terminate a, a literary project of 20 years. Well, what was the other option? Go Star Wars Legends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty much just abandon it where it is. Yeah. Leave everything as it is and either rebrand it uh, or just put a new name on it and then simply move on. And then with new uh, new works that follow it, adhere to a new continuity, keep it in line with the new canon, uh, 
and simply just don't address the last 20 years of continuity. That would have been the other way to go. Just say nothing. Well, speaking only for myself, I think you guys made the right choice by actually addressing it. And I think that the way that you guys addressed it in both books is pretty masterful. The way you guys weave together plot lines from like the Prometheus series of novels, which we now find out Worf is supposed to get captaincy of it because that captain's become an admiral and so forth and so on. It's very impressive. And you guys, even in the most in the second book, managed to weave in some of the more recent stuff in prime continuity, right? Like bringing California classes into the story and they're being used as utility ships. Love that huge unexpected surprise for me and you brought in characters from star trek online right there is so many little details in these books that show that you guys had a passion for the for the novel verse and for the rest of the star trek verse well it's, not, it's kind of a last chance i i think like this our last literally chance to do it yeah this is the the swan song i do have a question david um sure. outside of the three of you what other authors did you negotiate with? And if you have to include spoilers for the first two books, that's pretty much a done deal by now. But what other authors did you have to be like, hey, I know that you put this character here, but we're doing this project and it's over. So who can we take from you? And do you mind if we kill them? (laughs) (laughs) Well, one of the realities of Star Trek uh, licensed fiction is that none of us who write for it own any of it. And while we sometimes will reach out to an author who's got a continuing gig, like for instance, if someone, like if Greg writing a TOS novel had wanted to put in a nod to Vanguard, he probably would have checked with me and Dayton and the editor. But if he just wants to pull in a character from another TOS book, he's pretty much at liberty to do so. By the same token, anything that was on the table, any of the toys in the box were fair game, up to a point the limits that were drawn for us uh, primarily started with we have to leave most of Voyager alone and the reason for that is that Kirsten Beyer has been working very hard for many years to craft an ongoing serialized narrative about the full circle fleet their mission in the Delta Quadrant and again spoiler alert for those of you who have not finished reading the last Voyager book basically leading uh, the fleet out of our galaxy into the intergalactic void on a long journey to another galaxy, which is this sort of hopeful Hail Mary, you know, past type of uh, thing that they're doing. But in a way, it's kind of a hopeful gesture. And it's this sort of, you know, the launching into a grand adventure whose end most of us won't live to see, but it has to be done. Mm-hmm. And it's very exciting. And it was the note on which Kirsten wanted to resolve her saga. And there were also certain elements of Delta Quadrant species, Delta Quadrant politics, continuity that she used and sort of tied a little bow on and said, and this is done and this is where we're leaving this. So many of the elements that people for months ahead of our trilogy's release were speculating, oh, they're gonna use this, oh, it must be that. Like, you know, everyone thought for sure, everyone was positive our villain was the Krenum and I just oh. sat there. I just sat there and laughed, and I'm thinking, we were specifically told, don't touch the Krenum. Really? Kirsten is using those. They're integral to her story. Don't mess with it. She's going. I mean, tie the Krenum are the fascinating villains, so they would make sense for any sort of time travel, universe collapse they, plot. The, the the theories made sense, not yeah. knowing their limitations. They, they made sense, but what they lacked was the inside information that Kirsten was making heavy use of them, and that we had been explicitly told hands off were they the first choice 
if, if, if that had not happened well, i mean we we talked about a lot of options okay um but for instance you know that and most of the voyager characters were off limits consequently because of their departure from the galaxy and that event occurred significantly earlier in the continuity um well you still got tuvok torres and paris who are all still left behind essentially right use them use them well and we did in book two they're stealing Uh, the enterprise is one of my favorite beats in the novel (laughs) to be honest well, Someone's then, stealing that, that, Enterprise again. Nobody does a nostalgia hit like James. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, he, he, knows just, how to serve, he knows how to tee him up and knock him out. Not it was like that. beat for beat. It was great. I don't want to spoil this moment in the book, particularly because of the characters who were on this ship, but when this certain ship made its suicide play to protect so many others, I cried because... Mm-hmm. You know, the person who played the character on that ship is really well endeared in the fandom. And, yes. uh, and I, was... I actually got to uh, relay the, you know, tell the story of that particular scene uh, to the wife of that uh, performer. Oh, that's cool. Uh, who, who was very tell us touched, about that. Who was very yeah, touched by this. our homage. Yeah. I'm going to hear this. Well, you, if you can you give us know. any details? <laughs> well, I mean, we're obviously trying to avoid spoilers, spoilers for right? But maybe we can get back to that in the spoiler section. I yeah, let's wanna, okay. Let's that see. makes sense. That's fine. I'm certainly yeah. intrigued. Or when we so, do like sure. a, a post, but uh, more to, to come back around. No, but to come back around. Make a note. Were, okay. what, what was the question we had right before that? Uh, you know, now that we're in a rabbit hole, I don't remember how we stepped yeah. into it. <laughs> it was the question about what if the Krenum were your first choice for the Big Bad. Oh, or, right, right, oh right. yes, the, yes. The, the time, we, we discussed a lot of potential antagonists. We knew that for the type of story we were doing, which is going to have to deal with the conclusion of a timeline, the conclusion of a fictional universe, and then finding the sort of metatextual allegory to commenting on why in the real world, why are we doing this? We needed a threat that could potentially unravel a timeline. So first we went through the list of godlike entities. Q, Trelane, Calamarain, the Dowd, the Organians, the Metrons, uh, all your favorites. We ruled most of them out for various reasons. Some of them for being benevolent, some because they've been written off. We were told specifically, don't touch Q, leave Q alone. <laughs> all right, we'll leave Q alone. Anything so that, that's Iconians? because Q is involved in season two of Picard. Right. And right. he's playing time travel games and reality games there too. So we were, so. T- we were told, "Don't touch Q." Can't Anything Q. about the Iconians? The, the Iconians up? have been a dead species for ages. Uh, there's the Iconian right. gateways, but the Iconians, as actual players, they've been off the map for a long time. We okay. thought, you know, maybe we bring back the Shaddai uh, from Ooh, Vanguard and do yeah. a final callback. But then we realized that compared to the rest of, like, say, 24th century fiction, Vanguard had kind of a niche readership. And it never really approached the level uh, that, say, the TNG books had. So we were like, well, that would be kind of an obscure callback, um, you know, from another series, you know, for a non-canon antagonist. But we kept going. And one of the things that we eventually settled on, we said, all right, well, we have to have an antagonist that has time travel capability, space travel capability. And preferably one that would have a reasonable either grudge against our characters and a reason to do this, or a reason of their own, which suits their own needs to do such a thing. And I was the one who pitched the Davidians. Because, and I know that some folks have criticized this choice on 
certain discussion boards and review forums and certain blogs. But it's perfect. Uh, well, it is perfect. But the thing is, you know, some of them say, oh, I was expecting, you know, a real big bad. This seems sort of underwhelming. I was never that impressed by the Davidians. To which I say, well, then you didn't really think about what the Davidians represent, did you? Think about it. Sure, we saw, like, what, maybe a handful, three, four, maybe a half dozen at most in a cave. And Picard takes it out with a torpedo and thinks, well, that's all done. Let's go to the next system, number one. Yep, well, the weekly episode. You, you killed six dudes in a cave. You basically fired a stinger missile, you hit a, a desert cave, and you think you wiped out Al-Qaeda. What are you, nuts? All they hit you did a sauna take, with a missile. All, all you've done is put yourself on their radar. Now they know you're out there. Now they're angry. So consider there's probably a whole species of these damn things. And keep in mind what they were doing in Time's Arrow, part one and two. We're talking about a species that when they're out of phase, they're invisible. At will, they can move across interstellar distances and through time. They can shape change into anything they want. And what do they do? They feed on fear, pain, and anger, neural energy that they suck out of dying people. They literally eat death. These things are death incarnate. If you're not scared of that, this is, this is a thing that's invisible until it wants to come. Men can take any shape. They could be all over the galaxy. They could be at the beginning of time and the end of time. There could be billions, there could be trillions of these things feeding on death everywhere they go, fomenting war, fomenting famine, destruction. What could be more terrifying than that? And you pass someone who didn't like Time Zero, I thought that the episode itself was underwhelming for me because the stakes seem so small. I think right. the way you guys use the Davidians is far more ingenious than how the authors of Time Zero ever did. But I did have a question for you, just based on the whole like multiversal nature that we accept Star Trek has, right? Was there ever any thought process as to what would happen? And apologies for Tuvix, my puppy who's whining. Uh, was there any thought process as to if this universe's Davidians, which are consuming other galaxies or other realities, might run into Davidians from another reality that like oppose them, like a Davidian versus Davidian kind of conflict, or that are all Davidians really from up. the same reality, essentially? No. Uh, it didn't really come up. What we were dealing with here was simply the premise that we have this branch, this sub-branch of time and reality in that our characters inhabit. And because of specific circumstances that obtain in that branch of reality, it has created conditions that the Davidians were sensitive to and saw an opportunity to exploit. Now, normally the Davidians, terrifying as they are and widespread as they probably are, mostly they are scavengers. Mostly they lurk along the fringes, they take targets of opportunity. They tend not to trigger mass events, but they lurk along their periphery, along their fringes to sort of enjoy the buffet. But mostly they don't try to alter time they don't try to alter history they're not interested in altering the course of events merely in taking advantage of its flow and finding the moments of mass carnage like a you know and then like cockroaches or other insects or other you know bottom feeders they glom onto it they feast and then when it's over they go away now that's how they normally operate mm -hmm. but then if you create a system where if you damage their ecosystem in a way 
that they perceive a the damage and then b are smart enough to realize well wait a minute we could exploit this we could feed much greater numbers grow our species and increase our power and suddenly bob's your uncle suddenly all bets are off and the davidians have evolved into this threat that they were never going to evolve into in the prime universe but once you disturb the the, the core conditions by which they live they evolve and react and become something that they were not meant to be something essentially they become like a, a virus that kills the host um and it's in in there's plenty of examples of this in nature human beings right now on earth are a pretty good example of this the the the, the virus does really well it propagates it expands but eventually it kills its host and it dies off with it but in the meantime boy is it eating well oh yes and so there was there was a question that that i had about that and one never saw the davidians coming from a mile away but when it happened it made perfect sense but as i was reading that first book i kept thinking who could these be what, what could be used i thought it was going to going to be like a completely just different made up thing and then when it was the davidians sounded oh that's perfect and so so now what it what it pulls into and you, you kind of mentioned that was the actions that that picard triggered unknowingly thinking okay well these are the last six members of the species bomb them and then and then we're done with that so i, I guess is is that response and if it's something that you can't address because it might be coming up whatnot but was there any discussion or touch on of his responsibility to really is is he responsible for causing th this whole thing because he the escalation of davidian involvements i guess right if, if he, they had been left alone they probably would not have done anything but you know he kicked down the wall that the cockroaches were hiding in and now they're pissed um i don't know that we go into that that's not really one of the core themes and that's actually not the instigating incident that basically screws up the ecosystem that's the sort of thing that the davidians have probably just learned to deal with like oh all right somebody blew up one of our caves we lost a few people that happens well just it's the doomsday machine right that's what instigates things no no it's not that time travel doom okay no has it been revealed what it is no okay cool, cool. that's coming in book three no no never mind i won't poke, I won't poke. <laughs> going into book three our characters are still trying to figure out how to save their universe book three uh is when in in the pursuit of that information the first thing they come across is how did this happen in the first place why is it happening that is the first big revelation uh, uh book three gotcha now correct me if i'm wrong but you're wrong. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm sorry. Go ahead. Really, uh, if if I understood it from because I've got the audio book, listened to the first two that they came to the conclusion that they're not even in the prime timeline, that they're not on that main branch, that they're. I don't recall that being said in books one or two. Maybe maybe I misunderstood. I I, I thought that there was a there I was don't a thought think that, that they, was specifically said in books one or two. I think it's more of a realization that they may not be the prime that there is not such a thing as a prime every that, timeline is kind of even you're right that that's oh. what i meant like they may they thought that they may not be because of all these well there is no one right I mean, it's a multiverse right 
Okay. But they're just trying to assess, you know, essentially, again, these are issues that will be uh, conclusively addressed in the okay. beginning of book three. Excellent. Book three is split into uh, basically a prologue or prelude, mm -hmm. three parts and an epilogue known as a grace note. And it is in part one that we will address these questions. Okay, perfect. Okay. Yeah. So I have a couple things that I noticed in uh, James's book most recently. He like had several sections where he kind of like listed off a laundry list of like temporally relevant phenomena or uh, events or things, right? And I tried to look them up because I'm a nerd. I was on a flight when I first read them, so I couldn't read them then, but I took notes and then I looked them up when I got on the ground. Um, and some of these I couldn't find anywhere on like memory beta or anything else. Things like the Cassandra array or the pharoid chamber or Tlaloli 4 or the Janus gate. Do any of these have any sort of sourcing in other books or are they just like made up to, to thicken up the list of things that the temporal uh, Department of Temporal Investigations is like in control of? I'd have to ask James. I know the Janus gate was a Star Trek novel. Yeah, but I don't remember it having anything to do with time travel though. Well, I mean, it could be a multi-dimensional uh, portals oh. type thing, anything that allows moving between dimensions. Um, I mean, anything that lets you get to the mirror universe, for instance, would be considered an interdimensional uh, portal. So they're probably looking for anything like that. Yeah, his it list is was that great. The Davidians, part of what they're doing is they prime, you know, prep a universe uh, for uh, the buffet, is they take away its ability to self-correct, self-repair, detect threats uh, or go back in time and alter the situation. So they're targeting temporal artifacts, temporal and interdimensional portals, anything that their targets could use to protect themselves, get early identification of the threat or negate the threat by being able to move through time and oppose the Davidians. The Davidians are taking away those opportunities that's part of their opening salvo. That's why we, we opened book one with the death of the Guardian of Forever. Which was yeah, terrifying, opened, mind you. Yes. Opened up big. So this yeah. is what I'm trying to wrap my head around. It's an existential crisis. Okay, so we have multiple timelines across multiple universes. Uh, with the mere universe... Well, timeline universe pretty much... Okay, one universe, different timelines. Multiple universes. Uh, multiple universes, different timelines in every one. So sure. does the, the mirror universe is just one of those, or does the mirror universe have its whole uh, again, separate set? Well, my explanation may not end up comporting perfectly with canon, although okay. there are ways to reconcile what I do in book three with what Discovery ended up doing in season three. Um, they established some details about the mirror universe in season three of Discovery at a point after my book was written. And although at first those details don't seem to mesh, I can retroactively explain them later, but I don't okay. want to get too deep into it now. Gotcha. Yep. But there is a specific explanation. After book three is out and people have had a chance to read it, I actually have this really complicated graphic that I created for the use of me and James and Dayton and also for the licensing team and the editors so that we could see a visual representation of all the timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly bullshit that was going on <laughs> to build this story, explaining where everybody was, how we got from A to B to C to D to J to M to, uh, to L, et cetera, going around and around and around. And it's all color-coded and there's arrows and circles and little diagrams. 
anyway, I'll share that thing after book three has had a chance to get out there. I don't want to spoil people on that. That's either, so cool. I would big, love to see that. Yeah. Big spoilers in that graphic for, for book three. But one of the things that we specifically explain is the relationship between the universe that our characters inhabit and the mirror universe that they have encountered uh, multiple times in the Star Trek novels of the interconnected continuity over the last 20 years. Because, you know, I, I sort of took an approach to the mirror universe, which was a little different from the way, say, some of the show writers did and some of my fellow tie-in writers did. I approached it from a point of view of it doesn't have to be this way. This is how they ended up. That doesn't mean this is how they have to remain. That there are possibilities that the struggle for good, the whole reason they've come into contact with our heroes is to give them a shot at something better. And so I basically, instead of making it into just a big farcical opportunity to dress people up in slutty outfits and uh, you know have mass carnage for no reason, I chose to interrogate the concept of what if their lives are just different potentials and what if somebody tried to steer them on a nobler path? What then? And so we have stories like uh, you know Saturn's Children, which I wrote as Sarah Shaw, which is the Terran Rebellion struggling to find its feet. Uh, and then I follow that with Rise Like Lions, which follows the Mirror Universe anthology Shards and Shadows, um, where I wrote a short story about Kalar working with Barclay as Memory Omega field agents. Um, Memory Omega being the secret organization that Emperor Spock put together. Basically, it's the Star Trek Mirror Universe version of Foundation. Mm -hmm. uh, and I set up Spock as Harry Seldon. That's awesome. Well, you basically are saying that you wanted to take the premise of Mirror Mirror itself, right? Where if Spock could, was convinced by Kirk to do better, the mm -hmm. Empire could be reformed and be better, right? So, so you expand it. Right. But then we have crossover on DS9, which tells us that Spock's Empire fell, was conquered by the Cardassian Klingon Alliance, uh, the Terran people and its subjects enslaved, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, well, this seems rather disrespectful to Spock and the whole notion of uh, democracy, self-rule, freedom. The whole purpose of my novel, Sorrows of Empire, was to sort of explain the rise and fall of Emperor Spock, the fall of the Terran Empire. And then you find out this is, again, uh, borrowing heavily from Asimov's foundation. It's all part of a very long chess game in which Spock has realized that you can't just give freedom to people. They don't appreciate it when it's simply given, although it has to be the starting uh, gambit. It's only after freedom is tasted and then violently taken away that the people will fight to get it back. They've never known it up to this point, at least not the generations who are alive in the Terran uh, you know, sphere of influence. So he creates a situation where their opponents have to take it away from them uh, in the Sorrows of Empire near the end of the book. He has deliberately engineered a situation where he's going to be overthrown. And uh, at the heart of the story, there's also the sort of bittersweet uh, romance between him and Marlena. He basically winds up taking the captain's woman for his own because she knows about the Tantalus device. Uh, so he has to sort of keep her as inner circle. And they have sort of a whole story that spans decades. And then the event, in the end of that story, again, spoilers, uh, the two of them basically die together. They've been captured. They're in the console hall. Mar you know, Empress Marlena, or actually Consul and Consul's wife, Marlena uh, Spock and Marlena are on their knees. The Kardashians are saying, do you have any last words? And Spock says, 
with the fall of my republic, you know, with the fall of my civilization begins the fall of your own. Tyranny cannot prevail. And the last line of that chapter is, you know, as the flash of the disruptor uh, turned his universe white, Spock knew that he had won. Basically, wow. he knew the moment you pull that trigger on me, you're done. That means I win. I wow. mean, that definitely seems they like a Harry Seldon kind of move. Yeah, it does. Very Harry Seldon. Basically, Spock knows the moment they execute me, I win. It will take a hundred years or more, but I'll win. The way That's that amazing. You, the way that you talk about that kind of makes a bit more sense of how, spoiler, uh, of how <laughs> Spock finds um, the Aventine in mm-hmm. in that nebula. He's just, and so when somebody comments, like, you, you just figured it out? And Spock's like, yeah. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. Just, I mean, when, and, all right. Yeah, we just we just all right. Son we're moving forward. We don't have time to figure this out. It's cool. Let's go. Uh, I just all like Starfleet is looking for the ship, and you're just going to find it. <laughs> yes, Spock. Yeah, we should suspend disbelief okay. on Spock. <laughs> yeah. So, but yeah, so that was what I, that was how I approached the mirror universe. Was so I've got this whole foundation storyline running that carries into the 24th century. Uh, and I basically picked up the ball of the Terran uh, Rebellion, turned it into the Terran Revolution in my novel Rise Like Lions, which is essentially the story of the Terran Revolution and how they basically free themselves and establish a new entity known as the Galactic Commonwealth. A bit grandiose in name, but they have ambition. They, they're trying. Any reference the, to Andromeda on that one? Their systems Commonwealth? Uh, no, I mean, Commonwealth is just a... Sure. I mean, I come from the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Sure, but it, Virginia Commonwealth. It's it's a where I live. standard yeah. word. Okay. Kentucky's not a state. It's a Commonwealth. Well, do you know that? Now I do. Yeah. There anyway, you so yeah, we have the Galactic Commonwealth, and then we revisit that vision of the mirror universe to see how it's progressing in my Section Thirty One novel, Disavowed. Uh, which is essentially Bashir uh, acting as an agent of Section 31 alongside Serena Douglas. They have to stop the brain from stealing uh, Galactic Commonwealth wormhole jump ships. Uh, They're trying to steal that technology. And then, this is a fun bit, I always love doing this. In 2012, I had the Cold Equations trilogy come out. In the middle book, Silent Weapons, it turns out that this whole grandiose scheme and the assassination of the attempt on the Federation president, all this other crazy crap that's going on, is all just meant to be chaff to keep everybody looking way away while the Breen are trying to salvage the wreck of a wormhole jump ship that they found crashed on a planet technically in Federation-controlled space. And they're trying to do a sub-Rosa recovery operation. So they create all this havoc everywhere else so that nobody's looking here. And they get caught anyway. And of course, the question at the end of the book, it's never answered. Where the hell did this thing come from? Why did it jump over from the other universe? Well, in like 2014 or 15 or something like that, I, I write uh, Disavowed. And you know they go into the mirror universe and it ends with them trying to hijack the ship. Not only does it jump through space, but because of the sabotage, it ends up accidentally jumping through time. And it becomes the brain who are trying to steal this thing wind up creating the wreck that set them on the mission to come steal this thing in the first place. And they realize, I am fortune's fool. Kind of I a grandfather's paradox. I have come full circle in a, in a predestination paradox, and I'm going to my grave. Son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's the same thing that the Defiant did. Uh, the, the Constitution oh, yeah. class, uh, Defiant, mm-hmm. went into a 
Dumping in her to the mirror rift. universe and back in time. Yeah, the interspatial rift. Yeah, back to yep. Enterprise. Yeah. So you just brought up something that uh, you brought up your Section 31 trilogy, which I remember reading, and I really liked the control book. And I read it just after watching the Discovery season on it, right? I know that Dayton has mentioned many, like mentioned during an interview that he'd been talking to Discovery Productions and Picard Productions and uh, Lower Decks Productions. I assume that you also have a good relationship with them uh, and probably knew some of these things in advance somewhat. Okay, uh, okay. Some of it, I mean, I, I find some things out from Kirsten. Kirsten and okay. I talk pretty frequently. So how much, uh, when you were writing Control, were you like, man, I wish Discovery hadn't done X, or I wish they had done Y, because it would have made your story better or easier? Because I do feel like you tell a more interesting story as to the origins of Control. Dude, look at the copyright dates on the stories. My story, my, my novel, Section 31 Control, came out in March of 2017. Oh, oh, I didn't realize that. Right, it came okay. Out years before Discovery. Happened. I was totally. The reason the Discovery Room was aware of the concept is because Kirsten brought it up in the room as an example. They were looking, talking about possibilities, things they might explore, and she mentioned, well, in the books, you know, uh, you know, Dave Mack did this with a Section Thirty-One novel. This was, you know, how he approached it. She thought she was just throwing, you know ideas and the stuff, stuff into the mix to go into the meat grinder and come out changed on the other side and somehow they went yeah a malevolent ai named control that runs section 31 that's great and i'm like yeah that's mine that was me <laughs> but uh, because basically yeah. between between that and like at the end of the that season which was i think season two yeah um there's like a bit where the torpedo gets fired at the ship yeah. and it's lodged through the wall, undetonated, and they send someone to... I'm like, wait, this looks familiar. Where have I seen this gag? I've seen this gag before. Oh, yeah. I saw it in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, episode uh, season four, episode eight, Starship, Starship Down. Nine, which right. I, Starship Down, which I wrote. <laughs> I'm like, you assholes are doing Dave Mack's greatest hits. Can I get a, a thank you credit, please? <laughs> I mean, I know I don't get paid, but could I get a, I, I get a special thanks? I was can I get a gift? Can I get a T-shirt? Because there's a section in Ashes of Tomorrow where they're like recounting the, the the these catastrophes that have happened in the nine years since Voyager came back. It's oh, like, yeah. how does anybody survive all these freaking catastrophes? But whatever. Um, but, you know, when they're talking about, oh, yeah, you know, when we found out Section 31 was run by control, I was like, no, no, you can't steal that and do that with that. That doesn't make any sense. And, and <laughs> So, David, my apologies. I read them out of order. I should have read yours first. Then I could have seen how different the two stories were. My bad. I thought that you, your story was inspired by theirs, not the other way around. So, awesome. I preceded okay. them by years. I would have called gotcha. somebody. I, I talked to my agent. I no, said, that's hey, how the licensing listen. works. Problem, they problem is, uh, they, it's owned lock, stock, and barrel by Star Trek. Anything right, that's right. in a tie-in novel belongs to Star Trek, and the producers are free to pick and choose and use what they will uh, without credit, without compensation. That's I mean, they could have taken you to lunch. <laughs> and Again, all I'm saying card. is a special thanks credit, you know, special thanks <laughs> yeah. to Dave Mack for control, or, you know, send me a T-shirt and a thank you note. I mean, that's really all I'm saying. I, I don't expect a screen credit. I don't really expect to get paid. But it's a, the principle. A, a shirt. You know, uh, I, I, created, uh, I created the AI known as Control, and all I got was this lousy T-shirt. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> See, that's I all was, I'm asking for. I was hoping that it would say Wormhole Death Cannon. I've got one of those. Actually, uh, I oh, nice. That that's shirt, a thing. If that's a thing. Oh, you can, you can, on a shirt? Right over here. Hold on. Here. Are you guys going to have merchandise those? 
Uh, no, no, oh. we're not allowed legally to merchandise them because they wow. have a, uh, yeah. a version of the Star Trek Delta on them. Oh. Uh, we could probably merchandise the ones that don't have the Delta, but that's half the fun. But basically, we made the Wormhole Death Cannon uh, Intertime Tour 2387. We made them as tour shirts. And on the back, they have a list of prominent locations from all three books that are destroyed or otherwise compromised in the course of the story. And there's little gags in there like, uh, you know, uh, Chateau Picard, special all-acoustic show, um, <laughs> deep, you know, start station Deep Space Nine 2, uh, you know, uh, under renovation or, or show canceled, things like that. It's this. merchandising. Merchandising. <laughs> yeah, so we, we basically made these as a, a little gag. Originally, it was just going to be the three shirts for me, James, and Dayton. Uh, then we realized, well, you know, there were other people who were involved in sort of the creative give and take um, without whom this could not have happened. So we ended up making shirts for uh, Dayton's friend uh, and our, our sometimes collaborator, Kevin Delmore, who acted as a creative sounding board for Dayton. We made shirts for my buddy Glenn, uh, it's Glenn Howman and Keith Ari DeCandido, who were part of the brainstorming session with me and James. We made uh, shirts for our editors, uh, Margaret Clark and Ed Schlesinger, and we made one for John Van Sitters, uh, currently the vice president of global brand development for Star Trek, uh, because he was the licensing guy who sort of looked at the whole thing and approved it and basically told us, swing for the fences, guys, good luck. So the, the people I'm who sorry. encouraged us got the, got the shirts. Nice, nice. Dag's got a big question, but real quick, I just want to tell you, one of those shirts or many are going to end up as bootlegs at a star trek convention mark my words big j said it here november 13th 2021 it'll be really hard i mean they might be able to bootleg the front uh mm. basically you know, if they've seen the logo they might have pulled some of the art off of say dayton's header uh, on a facebook page or something but that's only going to be like the wormhole death cannon name along with maybe the delta that i designed to go behind it that'd be about it the rest of the shirt uh, we don't really, we haven't published photos of it. There's no images out there of the back of the shirt. Are you guys sure you're not being followed? We're always being followed by CBS snipers. The camera. The moment, I, the moment <laughs> I give a spoiler about something I know about Picard season two. There's like, there's like a Davidian just hanging <laughs> out waiting. If you, if you share the shirt design, the timeline changes and I'll eat everybody. So don't. <laughs> so, not, not terribly worried about that, but uh, I mean, I've got all the high res files on my drive, so. So any question uh, I, don't, I don't think it's likely. I mean, someone might make a knockoff version of the shirt once they've had a look at it, get a photo of it, but that's not my problem. I had a question about like thought processes here. As someone who has been like deeply invested in not just like time travel genres, but like 4D thinking and the science behind that, what kind of collaboration did you and James and Dayton like squish to get? The, the the immaculate way that you have weaved this non-linear tale because um, I picked up all those threads and I was right there just following along and it was fantastic very rarely is time travel and non-linear storytelling done so masterfully yeah uh, well I mean first of all if you look at the title page of each novel mm -hmm. you'll see that we share story credit uh, across the board on all three books Although Dayton's name is on the cover of book one, James on book two, me on book three, on the title page you'll see, uh, you know, Star Trek Coda story by, and then it's all three of our names. Right. And that's because we had to develop the outline together. The only way the editors would take the pitch 
was if Dayton, James, and I collaborated on all three stories, on all three outlines, and then and then submitted it as one big outline, as one document, so that they could read the whole thing and see the full arc of the story in one pass. And so we had to do that. And that involved, you know, circles and arrows and pictures with a paragraph on the back of each one, explaining what each one was to be used as evidence against us. Um, little Arlo Guthrie for you there. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had my charts, I had my diagrams, um, but mostly what we had was a lot of back and forth. And so even though, you know, I might have my name alone on the cover of book three, there are gonna be elements in there that were suggested by James or by Dayton. And I would go, oh, damn, that's great. I should totally do that. Let me change that. And there will be bits in book two or in book one that came from me and so on and so forth. Because we weren't selfish. We realized we were a team trying to create a great trilogy. And although each of us would only be responsible for one manuscript, we were jointly responsible for the overall story, for the narrative, for the concept. And so when we would come up with a great bit, I'd go, oh, I've got this great bit, but you know, it doesn't fit my book. It fits your book. How do you feel about this bit? And you know, sometimes they would go, oh, well, it doesn't really work because I want to do this and this. I go, oh, okay, so we do that. Or they'd go, oh, that's awesome. I'll totally take that. Thank you. I'll put that in right here. <laughs> so, and that was the way it went. Uh, it was a very unselfish process. Uh, and part of it is that, again, three of us have worked together many times before. We're friends. Uh, we're all sort of seasoned veterans of this sort of thing at this point. Uh, so that it was really seamless, easy teamwork. Uh, it was unselfish. It was just, I've got a great idea for your book. Can I pitch it to you? And we would just take it and we'd go. And when it was a good idea, it didn't matter who came, who it came from. It didn't matter who thought it up. A great idea is a great idea. A great story beat is a great story beat. And you just take it. And that was how we built the trilogy. Uh, and that's why, it, even though it's three different authors, uh, each of us with our own prose style and our own approach to pacing and, and structure. Uh, it's the reason why the narrative holds together across all three books is that all three are uh, a team effort. Well, you, you certainly took thinking with portals and turned it into thinking with time portals because yeah. there's well, a lot of stuff see that, that especially happens. in book three. Yeah, I'm, I'm stoked. I can't wait. Uh, I'm absolutely giddy about anything time travel. I've got like a handwritten map of all the Terminator timelines on my fridge. <laughs> you are going to love my diagram. Oh my oh. gosh. I oh, can't man. wait. Arrows oh, three. wibbly wobbly, you know, oscillating Red strings. And... <laughs> oh yeah. Basically that whole picture of Mariner with the conspiracy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's what I want. We, uh, yeah, that was pretty book... much us during the plotting phase. When's book three out again? November, November 30th. 30th. Oh, yes, and I have an audible credit to use. <laughs> yeah. So, so oh, we're going to go into the higher spoiler section now, if I remember yes. correctly. So I'm let's, let's just part. set that out there. This is For where sure. things get red alert. So, all right. Now is where the stakes really change. Yep, spoiler alert. So, David, I asked the same question to both Dayton and to James about, like, other fictional sources that might have inspired some of your ideas. You've already like waxed very eloquently about like foundation inspiring some of your other works. Is there anything that you can tell me uh, might've inspired some of your ideas for this third book or anything that you like you wanted to draw from for this trilogy? Well, in addition to being a capstone to 20 years of Star Trek literary uh, continuity, for me, book three is also an homage to the late Neil Peart of Rush. 
So one of the key inspirations for the book, for its themes, uh, for its section titles, uh, for some of its imagery is the lyrics uh, of a song called The Garden, which is the last track on Clockwork Angels, the final studio album by Rush, which I believe was released in 2015. And it was interesting because I was listening to this song, which is basically about reflecting upon your life and what it means and what was really important. And in the end, what is important in life? What lasts and what doesn't? Um, and as I was looking on the themes that are found in the lyrics of the garden, I found that many of the phrases, uh, many of the turns of phrase are echoed in eerie ways by lines of dialogue in different Star Trek movies, such as Star Trek Insurrection, Star Trek Nemesis, Star Trek Generations. And then in addition to those echoes, I found that there was an even more poignant echo in uh, a real life source, uh, which was the final words of Leonard Nimoy on Twitter, which was life uh, is like a garden. Perfect moments can be had, but not preserved, except in memory, live long and prosper. Uh, and I, I just, I saw this thread, this overarching tapestry about the, the theme of gardens, of memory, um, and of basically, you know, the, the intrinsic value of a life. How do you measure a good life versus a bad life? What is the unit of measure? What is the metric? Um, and so I, I took that as the sort of inspiration. It all started for me with the garden. Um, as far as other works, I mean, I think where I also drew a ton of inspiration, and this is almost always true for me, is music. I find the music that for me encapsulates the mood, the tone, the pace of a work. And in the case of Oblivion's Gate, the music that I had uh, going most often, except for you know maybe Avengers, Infinity War, and Avengers Endgame, most of what I was listening to was the soundtracks for seasons one and two of his Dark Materials. Oh, uh, that's a HBO, great soundtrack. Yeah. A great soundtrack by Lauren Balf, probably mm -hmm. one of the best composers working today. He did a Mission Impossible Fallout soundtrack, which is some of the best action movie music I've ever heard. Uh, he did Gemini Man, uh, Terminator uh, Genesis, I think. Uh, he's done a lot of great, great scores. But the stuff that he did specifically for his Dark Materials, he did two discs for each of the first two seasons. The first he calls a musical anthology, which is where he works out in sort of broad strokes and longer compositions the overall themes, uh, you know, the, the character themes, story themes, themes that relate to this or that, but are not specifically tied to any scene or any moment or any particular cue. He's just working out the sounds, the melodies. He's working out the musical personality of a season in his anthology. And then you have the season cues, which are the specific cues tied to moments on screen. And you can hear the work that he did in the anthology coming back piece by piece um, in different ways, different octaves, different tempos, in minor chords, and he just brings it all back together. And the result is that he has some tracks that are uh, both inspiring and heartbreaking at the same time. He has some where he really captures that feeling of terror, that feeling of utter dread that I realized the Davidians must cause just by their mere presence. And so that soundtrack, those two soundtracks and their anthology uh, predecessors uh, were also a key inspiration 
for Oblivion's Gate. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I also, so like I said, I read the second book on a flight, so I just had music playing in my ears the whole time. I, I ended up finding that I was repeating a single song more than once. It's uh, Time is Running Out by Muse, just because of that sort of syncopated beat that just kind of like builds on itself a lot and Madness from Muse as well. And I found that those two were like the soundtrack to me reading the book. So I also I found that a Spotify nice. playlist of like uh, more classic rock songs that not only also inspired uh, or captured the mood uh, of book three and the trilogy overall. But if you go through them and you listen to them, uh, you find that some of the lyrics in each of the chosen songs uh, serve as either uh, clues to or commentary on the storylines, the character arcs. Um, basically, there's like little hints are hidden in the lyrics. Like, uh, just to give you an example, the second track or third track, I think, in the, in the list is Against the Wind by Bob Seger. And if you listen to it, and you really start to think about what it might mean in the context of CODA, you realize that it's uh, essentially the, the point of view of old man Wesley Crusher, the mm -hmm. traveler, reflecting on his life of moving through time and this sort of ongoing mission that's had him in motion for hundreds of years uh, without rest, without stopping. And now he's trying to figure out how to communicate everything he's learned, but he realizes he can't, as they said in book one, he can't just spill all the beans without screwing up the timeline. So he's got to figure out, how do I leave myself breadcrumbs to help my other self, my other temporal self, get here, but without blowing the whole thing? And I feel like that was captured beautifully in a line in the song, a, a lyric, which is, you know, uh, deadlines and commitments, what to leave in. Well, once the trilogy's out, I'd love for you to share that Spotify playlist because I'll just listen to oh, it. Oh, the, the playlist is shared. If you go to my, uh, I've shared it multiple times on Facebook, <laughs> Twitter. If you go to my website, davidmack.pro, from the front page, you can click through to Oblivion's Gate, the detail page about the book. And right there in the middle of the page, there's a link to the Spotify playlist for the inspirational classic rock songs. Found there's it. Also a, there's also a link on that page to the reading list uh, or background reading music which includes all of the his dark materials along with several others and it's basically this huge spotify playlist of mood music and background music from movie soundtracks and tv soundtracks put that on and read book three and you'll be all set to go thank you that's what i'm doing sounds uh yeah i live with a musician so i understand the magic that comes with creativity and music in the background uh david uh, we are so thankful that you could be here with us today. Um, we got to cut it at the time now. Um, so, uh, yeah, if uh, we can, do you have any socials that you want to call out for yourself? Uh, well, as I said just moments ago, my website is davidmack, M-A-C-K, dot pro, dot P-R-O. From there, you can find links to my other social, but the key ones to know are Twitter, David Allen, A-L-A-N, Mac, and you can find me on Facebook at the David Mac. Nice, nice, love it. I could have kept this going another hour. Thank you so much, David, for your time. Me, yeah, me, we, we we could have. You're getting off very lucky. Just to <laughs> let you know. Well, the best hey, part. Yeah, if nobody can gab like me, I could have gone another hour too. But the best uh, part about this is that um, you know James 
kind of invited us to do a postmortem after your book comes out and the hype is kind of there, maybe after Christmas, after New Year's, uh, sure. we can find some time to do a, all right, full on spoilers. Why did you do this? Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. That would be excellent. Yeah, once yeah, the, all three books are out and people have had a chance. Absolutely. Yep. The six yeah, of us great. together. Me, and that'd be amazing. And James on do a little round table. If we, we can, can get, get into the, yeah, we get into themes and how we set stuff up and. Yeah. yeah, the uh, the Davidians taking over the universe the way they have in your book is the second biggest threat to six men in their late 30s trying to get together at the same time to talk and do anything. <laughs> well, I mean, we're dealing with time zones. That's basically what the Davidians caused by anyways, right? Like, let's blame the Davidians for time zones. Right, the right. Least least for daylight savings time. Oh, man. Yes. Well, we can at least lay that one at their feet. Can we get rid yes. of daylight savings time? We, Seriously. Really well, now we're on that. the beyond daylight it savings time podcast. <laughs> <laughs> All it requires is a congressional bill. Uh, uh, right. Good luck on that one. Audience, yeah. thank you so much, uh, truly, for going boldly with Beyond Trek podcast. Hey everybody, I just wanted to give a quick shout out to our Patreon and Anchor supporters. Big thanks to Stephanie Baker, S. Tam, Anne Marie, Jim Cook, and Nora Hickson. We really appreciate your support. Thanks for being a part of Beyond Trek Podcast. We are Beyond Trek Podcast. Lower your inhibitions and surrender your years. We will add inspirational and hilarious Trek content to your day. Your attention will adapt to subscribe to us. Resistance is futile.